Good morning, church. My name is John, and I have the pleasure of serving as one of the elders here. I also today have the pleasure of bringing God's word to you. Now, I'll warn you, it's been 13 years since my last sermon. So I've had a lot of time to add and add and add. So I'm glad we got cushioned seats. I hope you're comfortable. Uh, no, uh, just a little bit about that 13 years ago. Uh, this is pre our four lovely children. Uh, my wife and I were living in the island of Aruba in the Caribbean. <clears throat> and through a series of events that could only be described by God's providence, I became the preaching pastor of a small congregation of like 20 to 30 people. Now, one huge caveat in this was those 20 to 30 people primarily spoke Spanish. If you know me, you know I love to try that tiny bit of Spanish that I do have, and often resulting in very awkward situations. You would bring Jamaica no more greater joy than asking her after the service to describe the various times I found my foot in my mouth. Um, but when you're preaching God's word, you really don't want to fumble up your words. So I definitely did not s preach in Sp Spanish. I, I preached in English, but I had an interpreter. The interpreter spoke four different languages. His third best language was Spanish. You can maybe see where I'm going with this. His fourth best language was English. Now, by God's grace, God, I do believe, was able to use these messages for his glory and for the profit of those hearing. So I'm pretty hopeful today when I speak in my native tongue that God can use it as well. Let's pray, and I'd like to ask God to do just that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity to share your word. I thank you for your word and the power that it brings. Lord, I pray that you would uh, use me as your servant and take my words and make them yours. I pray that you would open the hearts and the ears of those here today and that you would speak to each one of us your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So another little thing about me, if you didn't know, I am a teacher. So it, it behooves me to have a little bit of audience participation here. So I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I promise not to call on anybody, maybe with a few exceptions on the front row. But um, raise your hand, a simple question. How many of you here this morning, let's say, had things go pretty much according to your plan. Okay, we've got a few hands. My wife's hand, not one of them. I, I believe her husband might have forgot to feed the children's breakfast, potentially. Um, how many of you here over the past week have had things go according to your plan? Okay, it looks like the heat got a few of us Seattleites. Maybe over the past month, over the past year. Okay, not many hands, I'm noticing. This is good data. Um, let me, let me change directions on us just a little bit. What about how many of you here have had, at some point in your life, a curveball thrown your way? Something unexpected happened. Maybe profound grief, maybe loss. Um, okay, I'm, I'm relieved. I was expecting this, and I have tailored my sermon towards this. I was really not sure where I would go if I didn't have the hands. Uh, it would have been a quick, tidy sermon and then go play in the sun. But the good news is we're, today's scripture that we're going to look at is for the people that have been disappointed, confused, and not always sure what to make of life. 
Now, one thing I'm not going to do today is try and give you pretty bows to wrap around these circumstances, and I'm certainly not going to try and explain exactly why God has allowed these things to happen in your life. But I do hope today to point you to biblical truth that can bring comfort in these circumstances. I also hope to challenge you with the question, how big is your God? Our text today is found in the book of Romans. If you brought your Bible, whether electronic or print, either one's good, um, you can go to the back of your Bible between uh, the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians. You'll find it. This, was, this book was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Rome. And today we're going to be reading chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 28 to 39. Now, one more little teaching strategy here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break this up a little bit. We call it chunking um, so that we can kind of take a little more bite-sized pieces. My fellow teaching wife knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so we're just going to look first at the first three verses, verses 28 through 30. So please follow along with me as I read them to us. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, a little, just a little bit of context. Uh, I think it's pretty clear by the title that this book was written to the Christians in Rome. It was written by the Apostle Paul around A.D. 57. That was not an easy time to be a Christian in Rome. Rome was very much a pagan city. They worshiped pagan gods. You've probably heard of many of their gods. They make up our solar system, Mars, Saturn, Venus, Jupiter. They were polytheistic. And it was expected if you lived in Rome that you too were polytheistic. Now, I, did, I do gather from the limited research I did that there was a little bit of an allowance made to the Jews that practiced their historical religion because they had been doing it for thousands of years. The Rome's kinda, Romans allowed them to do their thing. However, if you were a Christian following this, this newfangled belief in Jesus as the Son of God, at best you were looked down upon at worst, you were persecuted. In fact, a very well-known persecution, seven years after Paul wrote this letter, took place in AD 64. The emperor Nero, uh, he blamed this great fire in Rome on the Christians. And then he carried out this, this mass persecution. Many Christians were executed just seven years after Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. So it's amidst this backdrop, Paul has the audacity to say, we know all things work together for the good of those who love God. Let me say it again. There's one key little three-letter word in there I want you to pick up on. We know, what is it? All things work together for the good of those who love God. I ask you to consider, how could Paul say this? How could he know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Do you believe this is relevant to you? I intend to show you that Paul could say this to the Roman Christians and to us here today. 
because he had an accurate view of God. He knew God to be a great God who was and is in control of everything. Theological word for this is sovereignty. There are lots of aspects of God's sovereignty that can be explored, but today we're just going to focus on two. We're going to talk today about the two aspects of God's sovereignty we see in this passage. His sovereignty in eternity, and then his sovereignty here today. So let's talk first about how God is, has and is been, been sovereign throughout all eternity. The, um, if we look again, let's look again at verses 28 through 30. Paul's assertion here is that for those who love God, or in other words, those who are Christians, believers in Jesus, for those people, God has known you since the beginning of time. That's where he says he foreknew you. That he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of Jesus, his son. That he has called you to be a follower of him. That he has justified you through Jesus' death on the cross, and that he will glorify your body when we one day pass from this earth. Notice who is doing all of the actions here. It is God, not us. There is, in fact, no mention of us. No mention of us humans doing anything here. In very simple terms, God is saying, or Paul is saying, rather, that God chose you and saved you. You didn't choose God. Now, that simple statement that God chooses us and we don't choose God can be extremely difficult for people. And I'm guessing there's probably some alarm bells sounding off in this room thinking, well, what about my free will? What about my choice? And, and I'll admit, there's a lot here. In fact, there's been volumes upon volumes written about this topic. This topic's often called predestination or election. And I will also say there are Christians who disagree on this topic. Personally, I really didn't come to understand this topic much until my time in Aruba. However, I do believe it's an important one. And the leadership of the church definitely stands behind this. And I do believe that there is a vast amount of scripture supporting this. And I also intend to show you today that this is the basis in which we can have confidence today that God is still in control. Now, I won't complete an exhaustive defense, but I do want to share with you a few other verses in the Bible that support, that support this, that God is sovereign in our salvation, that God does it all. My hope is that at a minimum, I might cause you to think twice about it. First, I want to look at the, the book of John, chapter 10, verses 24 through 30. And we'll just put it up here so you don't have to thumb too much. Um, here, uh, the, the Jews are talking to Jesus. Let me just read. The Jews surrounded him, that's Jesus, and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. I did tell you, and you don't believe, Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We see in this passage Jesus being questioned by the Jews. They're saying, just tell us if you're the promised Messiah. Jesus' emphatic response, I have. So where's the disconnect? If they want to know who the Messiah is, and Jesus, the promised Messiah, is telling them it's me, why don't they believe? What about, on top of that, all the miracles Jesus had performed? Why can't they see it? Jesus explains that, them, explains that to them here in this passage. The gift of belief hasn't been given to them. At this point in time, they aren't God's sheep. Maybe they will come to belief later, but at this point, they are not God's sheep. We see this happen in other passages of God's word that I'm just going to briefly mention, and I think we'll have a, have a list there if you want to write them down. Um, in Acts 13.48, after Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel to the, to the Gentiles in Antioch, it says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he tells his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And then finally, I, wanna, I do want to read a passage in Ephesians, which was just prior to the Ephesians passage we read earlier today. Verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 where Paul opens his letter to the church in Ephesus uh, saying this. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Again, we see here no talk of us and our choice. We see here Paul emphasizing that God chooses us. We don't choose him. Now, this can be a hard word to hear, no doubt. This can be difficult for our human sensibilities. Again, what about free will? What about my choice? You might be thinking, didn't God give me an opportunity to choose? I mean, I know Jesus did his thing on the cross, but I had to add him to my team, right? Maybe it's not a 50-50 partnership. Maybe it's 80, Jesus, 20, me, but, but I got a part, right? I believe that these are misconceptions when we look at Scripture. We are told in the Bible to choose God, and we are told to follow him. That is true. And we're told we're responsible for that choice. However, because of our sin nature, we won't do our part. On our own, our free will choice will always be to go our own way. We will fall because of our sin nature. This is why the, the Jews couldn't hear or understand Jesus when he was telling and showing them that he was the Messiah. The Bible teaches that we also, outside of God's grace upon us, won't submit to Jesus either. 
We need his intervention. We are dead in our sins. Dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. God makes Christians alive. Which was exactly in line with what his plan was for each believer since the beginning of time. We are saved by grace, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's God's gift. As our Romans passage explains, God was in his control over saving his people. Now, I, I must mention, what if you are sitting there, unsure of your faith? Or, quite frankly, you just you don't believe right now. You're not convinced. First, I, I've got to say, I'm so glad you're here today. I believe this is the place for you to be. Um, but the question must come to mind, does that mean that God hasn't chosen me or predestined me since the beginning of time to spend eternity with him? Or what if you're here a believer yourself but wondering about an unbelieving family member or coworker, or neighbor or other loved one? Does this mean they won't come to know Jesus? Absolutely not. God calls all types of people at all times in their lives as part of his plan. And thank goodness he doesn't let us in on it. It works out that way all through the Bible. We see even Jesus on the cross told the thief in his final moments that he would see him in paradise. God doesn't reveal to us who he will bring to faith and when he will bring people to faith in him. That's why... Here at the Hollows Church, we teach the word of God to everyone in hopes that they are God's sheep, in hopes that he will use it to draw his people to his truth and to him. I hope you've been feeling that call. If you have, God simply asks you to come to him and respond to that call. Often in the life of a believer, it isn't until afterwards that you recognize, oh, yeah, God was at work in me all along. God brought me to his word. God brought me to his truth. God brought me to him. Often we don't see that till the end. Here's a personal example about the ways in which God works mysteriously sometimes. <clears throat> Jeremiah is uh, not in his customary last row seat, but my brother Jeremiah, um, I've known him a little over 10 years ago. Now this is with Jeremiah's permission that I share this, but when I first met Jeremiah, it was at our prior church. Uh, Jeremiah was working for the state of Washington as a caretaker for his father. Jeremiah's father was wheelchair bound. Um, he has since passed away, but he was a, a believer in Christ. And Jeremiah's dad wanted to go to church. So Jeremiah, as his obligation as caretaker, he would uh, take him in the wheelchair. We had quite a large sanctuary. He'd take him down the side, he'd walk him all the way up to the front row set his dad down, maybe give him a pat on the back. Then Jeremiah would promptly walk all the way back, head back out to the foyer, and hang out in the foyer far away from where the word of God was preached. At that point in time, Jeremiah was the same lovable, affable self, fun-loving guy, but he wanted nothing to do with God's word. He did not want to be under the preaching or hear God's word at that time. He had no interest. Several of the guys at the church invited him in, said, come on, just come on in. And he wasn't, at that point, going to have anything to do with it. 
However, as evidenced by his presence here today, and if you know Jeremiah, as evidenced by the change in his heart and in his life, God had other ideas for you, brother. I'll let you guys talk to Jeremiah, and he can fill you in on more of the details about just exactly how God brought Jeremiah to himself. But it was clear, clearly a work of the Lord. Not what I would have predicted when I first met this young man, but praise be to God that it wasn't what I predicted that God had in mind. So now we've looked at Scripture, and hopefully I've at least made you think twice about this assertion that God does it all in bringing his people to himself. But I do got to ask you now, so what? Why does this matter? Is, we're just getting into just theological gymnastics here, right, John? What, what does this mean to me? Glad you asked that question. Let's look at the second passage of Rome, Romans 8, where, in fact, you'll see I stole this question from Paul, the Apostle Paul, and uh, as he leads off this second part in Romans with exactly that question. I'm going to be reading now from Romans 8. I'm going to read verses 31 through 39. What, then, are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Verse 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is saying here that if you know that God has chosen you and had a plan for you since the beginning of time, then he's got things taken care of today. God cannot be thrown off guard. God was in control when he brought you to faith in him like he had planned since the beginning of time. He's still in control. For the person who trusts in Jesus, God has and is and will be sovereign in all all of your circumstances, even those ones that you raised your hand about earlier, especially those ones. Do you believe that? Do you trust in that? I've got to admit, I'm a fellow struggler, and I can't say I always do. I struggle with that at times. And this, looking at this passage and preparing for this sermon was really helpful for me, as I need to be reminded constantly of God's goodness, and his sovereignty in all of my life. I want to look at just a few aspects in, this, in these eight verses in Romans where we see how God is sovereign today. The first one is found in verse 31. 
God is for us. It says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who is against us? Friends, God is on our side. God wants and knows what is best for us. You know, we've got to remember in the tough times that if God is on our side, what could really be against us? In other words, what could be too large for God? Is there anything? Satan? Death? No, there's nothing too big for God who is for us. Amen? Next, in verse 32, we see that God gives us all things. We only need one piece of evidence. We know he gives us all things because he sent his only son, Jesus. And he didn't send him to, to throw a parade. He sent him to die on the cross for us. He didn't spare anything for us. He gives us all things. Now, I must point out, I must point out that God giving us everything isn't always the fun stuff. It also includes the challenges and obstacles that God uses to shape and mold us. Remember the beginning of verse 28. It said, all things work together for good. It's a key difference here. It does not say all things are good. Or in our culture's vernacular, it doesn't say it's all good. No. God allows things to happen. He uses all things for our good. All things aren't necessarily good. We can't put a pretty bow on everything, and certainly, please don't ask me to explain to you some of the tragedies that you've experienced. I certainly can't ex explain them all to you, some of, the, some of the ones that I have. But Paul is saying that nothing happens outside of God allowing it. And somehow, some way, it will work together for good for his people. We may never see or understand the good here on earth, but we can trust in our good God that he is working things out for his people. Amen? Verse 33 tells us that God justifies us in his sovereignty today. It goes on and says here that we can't be accused. Now, as my children will attest to, this doesn't mean that we are perfect and people won't ever call us out on our wrongdoing. That's not what it means. Rather, this means that ultimately our sins are paid for by Jesus. And to be clear on who's doing the calling out, usually it's the kids calling out their dad on the wrongdoing. <clears throat> but um, it means our sins are paid for by Jesus. It doesn't mean we're perfect. But we aren't to hang our heads in shame when we screw up again. When we mess up, again, God knew you would screw up. He knew since the beginning of time when he planned to save you. When we screw up, we're to turn to him, confess our sins, repent, and then God's word says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? In verse 34, we see God is sovereign today in interceding for us. Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you. He is asking the Father to give you what you need today in whatever circumstances you face. 
He knows those circumstances probably even better than you yourself. He allowed them to happen. And Jesus is at the hand of the Father advocating for you. Amen? Finally, in verses 35 through 39, Paul saves the best for last. And we see that God is with us. God and his love is with us. Now, again, I've, I've got I've to point out, Paul does not say, now we're going to ride off into the sunset. Or now all your dreams will come true. No Hollywood ending. If your hope is in that, you're in for something. In fact, judging by the hands, I think you've already figured it out. Paul simply says that God and his love will be with you, and you can't be separated from that love. Life is not easy. There's no sugarcoating it. We live in a fallen world, a world wrecked by sin. And yet, we can't be separated. None of the difficulties that may hit you in life will separate us from God's love. Look at the list Paul comes up with. I don't, my goodness, I couldn't have come up with this. Affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, sword. Ooh, tough one to say. My goodness. You know, if that wasn't enough, Paul goes back and you might notice a little indentation in your Bible. He uses and quotes Psalm 44. He says, Because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. If you didn't get the point then, now he's comparing you to a sheep that's heading to the slaughterhouse. Life isn't easy. But God is with us. As we all demonstrated... God is with us and life is hard. Yet, with God on our side and present with us, we are more than conquerors. We're conquerors not because life is ever going to get so great and certainly not because we're eh, so strong. No. We are conquerors because God is with us and we can't be separated from his love. We can't be separated from his infinite goodness and his infinite love. That is the hope of a Christian. Amen? Now, I'm going to close today with a personal anecdote that I want to share. It was not a coincidence that I was first really grappling with my theology, and particularly God's sovereignty in saving me when Jamaica and I were spending time in Aruba. I recognized when, when I was in Aruba, I was making God small. I was a believer. I was a Christian. I trusted in Jesus, but I was a Christian with a smaller God. I believe that you know, God did a lot for me, but I was pretty smart, too, to choose him. And that he was someone I could go to when I needed help, sure, but also I was, I was doing a lot for him, too. It wasn't a 50-50 partnership, but I, I thought at least maybe I had 10 and he had 90. During my time in Aruba, my eyes were open to scriptures like the, one I, the ones I shared with you today and others that say I had it all backwards. God had chosen me. And God had a plan for me, and God was ultimately in control of everything, even the fact that I believed in him and his son Jesus. Now, at that time in my life, I got some hard news, probably the hardest news I've had thus far. My father was sick with cancer. I knew this was the risk of talking about this. 
As I've told many of you, my dad was an incredible man of God. He had an enormous influence in my life. He was one of my heroes, and he was dying of cancer? What? How could that work out for good? The cancer and what it was doing to my dad definitely was not good. He lost his hair, his appetite, his energy. And there's seven grandchildren for him to meet later. The cancer was a result of the fallen world we live in. Yet, even in a brutal battle with cancer, I was able to witness how God didn't abandon one of his sheep. God was with my dad through it all, and even granted him a special, unique understanding in his heart of the truth of God's sovereignty in each moment of our lives. There's one illustration I've got to share. There was a time um, towards the end of my dad's illness when Jamaica and I made the decision to come back from Aruba to be in Seattle. During this time, we were staying with my parents um, when my dad was ill. Now, due to the cancer, if any of you have known uh, someone struggling with cancer, you just don't have much energy. There's not much you can do. So often we watched movies. One night we watched the movie We Are Marshall. Um, it's a Matthew McConaughey movie. It's a true story about uh, a college football team, Marshall University. It's in western West Virginia. Um, in the 1970s, they had a, a tragic plane crash where most of the team was lost. And the movie kind of outlines uh, the, the people that were left, how they just kind of put it together and moved forward. Now, at the end of the movie, there was a slideshow. Uh, it was a slideshow of real images from the town um, in the 70s. As I remember it, it was the last slide. But towards the end, a slide came up. Um, it was a theater movie marquee, and it had the title on it. It was part of Job 121. It said, the Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Now, as I remember it that night, the screen went blank, and the movie was over. We were tired, all of us, and we were getting up from the movie, heading off to bed. But there was my dad in his chair. And he asked us, do you guys know how this verse ends? We all responded with a resigned, sorry, Dad, I, I don't know. He sat there in his cancerous state, not able to do much or move much. And he said it ends with blessed be the name of the Lord. I'll let you guys look it up. It's true. The way God was with my father through his cancer, giving him courage and hope, was a powerful testimony to me. God was with him, and that was the greatest gift. Now, I'm not going to try and put a bow on his suffering or mine. The difficulty of losing your dad to cancer, many of you probably can relate. It sucks. And I can't pretend to understand it all in God's wisdom. But I know that in God's sovereignty, when he is with us, it will work out for the good of his people. I also know that my dad's doing pretty good right now. He's with Jesus. Paul's promise in Romans 8 was true for my dad, and it's true for us here today. My dad was a conqueror because God was with him through it all, not because he was strong, because his God was strong. The same is true for us, Lord willing. As I close, I ask you, what do you say to these things? 
Have you made God too small? Do you trust that he is working in those circumstances you're facing today? Do you trust that he is with you, with his love and his goodness? My prayer for us all today is that we would recognize that we have a huge God that gives and takes away sometimes in ways we don't understand. But ultimately, he is for us, he is with us, and he will be for all eternity. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray.